Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome, everyone, to Project Management Office Hours, the number one live project management radio show in the U.S. We're broadcasting from the Phoenix Business Radio X studio in Tempe, Arizona. I'm your host, PMO Joe, and for the next hour, we'll be talking project management and Agile today with our special guests. This is the first show of 2020, so super excited to be back for Season 3 of Project Management Office Hours. So thank you to the Phoenix Business Radio X studio folks for letting me be part of what they do. It's a great opportunity for those in the Phoenix, Atlanta, and other areas across the U.S. where the Business Radio X studios are located to share the business message uh, out there and get the business community engaged in a long format radio show. So thank you so much to them. Also, thank you to the PMO squad. Uh, If you're having any issues delivering strategic initiatives within your organization, reach out to the PMO squad. They're focused on PMO consulting, uh, project management resources, project management technology services, uh, and of course, the purpose-driven PMO, which empowers people to deliver results. Visit www.thepmosquad.com to learn more about their purpose-driven PMO. So we are super excited for our first guests this year, uh, Brad Hugic and Stephen Fulmer. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Brad, if you could take a moment, uh, just introduce yourself to the listeners and let them learn a little bit more about you. Thanks, Joe. And thanks to Business Radio X for having me. Uh, my name is Brad Hugic. I'm an enterprise coach, an agile coach here with a large automotive company. I'm based in Atlanta, Georgia. And we do have some uh, global presence, including uh, presence across the United States. Now, I had the opportunity to be in Phoenix last August for the first time and really enjoyed it. So thanks for having me. I look forward to the conversation today. Yeah, that's great. And I've known Brad, I was, I was trying to think about this, I don't know, 33, 34 years, whatever it may be. Um, yeah. And if you look at us, I mean, we both look younger than that. So I'm not sure how we could know each other that long, but uh, going back to college uh, days. So it's it's been great to know Brad all these years. And then uh, last year, got to uh, meet Steve and add him to my newer list of friends. So welcome, Steve. A, a repeat visit for you. Our... Repeat visit. I'm, pl- I'm pleased to be back. Actually, privileged to be you know the first show of 2020. I've said I wanted to support a bunch of your activities this year. So the first of many support efforts, I hope. Well, so excited. And, and for those who didn't catch the first show, if you want to give a, a moment here to introduce yourself to the listeners and Certainly. let them know I, you. I, I gave a long, eclectic introduction last time. So for any of you who want to, it's June of 2019. Go back and listen to that one for the more rambling, eclectic one. I, I have been a project manager long before I declared I was a project manager. Uh, I was forced, for lack of a better way to put it, to become a project manager in 2001 when the manager had hired me for AG Communication Systems, uh, AG, uh, AT&T, GTE, Lucent, Bell Labs. Um, and they said, we're going to create a PMO very first time. And, and I had been an engineer. And to me, every P- project manager I'd run into before that was uh, just the bane of my existence. Follow this, dot the I's, cross the T's. It made me crazy. He pulled me into the class and the author of the course that we took uh, to get PMP certification, Ed O'Connor, became my mentor. And convinced me that I had been a project manager probably all of my life from a person, people skills. And it made me a project manager. And then Ed asked me to edit several editions of his book. He passed away four years ago, sadly. And I have continued his work as a project management instructor. So that's my connection into the, you know, the PMO Joe show and, and our PMO radio project management office hours and your work. But my interest outside of that with people skills has been neurosociology. And I will, I'm sure, cover pieces of that as we go through this. Uh, The easiest way to summarize that is all through the 1900s, studies of human behavior and social behavior. So psychology and sociology have been behavior-based. To me, that's always been fascinating because everything in project management well, at least in terms of professional certifications, always been very process-based. And I never understood why, because all successful projects have always been people-based. That's my experience. 
And that's probably why project managers were the bane of my existence. At least the ones I ran into in engineers were, you know, totally about process and not about people. I'll stop that kind of intro now. And I kind of, I'm fascinated. Brad and I had a short visit uh, using FaceTime several days ago to get to know each other before the show. And I'm fascinated from some of the experience that he has. So I want to hear more about that. And then I'll throw my two cents in where it kind of supports his efforts. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming back, Steve. Really appreciate it. And hopefully we've got some uh, exciting things that we might be able to, to work on later this year for a little bit of a teaser. We've been working, I've been working with Arizona State University to prepare for a project management summit that we're going to bring here to Phoenix uh, later this year. So as we get a little closer and the details get worked out, we'll get more details out to the listeners. But what one thing I want to focus on this year for, for season three, one of my themes is can't we all just get along? There's been this division in the project management or delivery world, as I like to call it, between agile and traditional. And I think the end result for all is really to, to have a better solution. It's just different approaches on how to deliver. And Brad, I know you've got some great experience in both, right, as a traditional project manager starting out and now in your current role uh, as an enterprise coach. What's kind of been your experience with, with that difference and how are they different and how are they similar? Very similar to Steve's experience. I, I started in the electrical engineering ranks and got in quickly into software development in the 90s. And at that point, had an opportunity to get more into project management and also have a PMP. And, and that evolved into eventually joining a team that said, hey, we're going to be a scrum team. Uh, this was more popular in the mid-2000s, uh, shortly after the Agile Manifesto uh, became current. It was talking about the art and science of being a project manager at the time and then moving into the Agile Manifesto and talking about individuals and interactions and how we respond to change. And with the the team that I was with, I was actually like, well, we're we're fairly we kind of know what we need to do. For example, we were working on 30 third-party systems and yes, we had the ability to do some custom development, but we also had to do some product updates that were fairly routine. We would do them every year or two. And that was the more predictable piece of it that actually lended itself a little bit better for traditional project management. But as we evolved into having the opportunity to work with other teams and things were changing a little bit more frequently and rapidly, definitely saw the advantages of Agile. And at the time we were using uh, the, the Scrum method, it actually allowed this adaptability to be more fluid and frequent. And it, it kind of blended that art and science that we were talking about even before Agile and Scrum. So that was that was my initial foray into uh, the Agile world and had the, a wonderful opportunity to get some training from from one of the founders and uh, signatories of the Agile Manifesto. He, he just did a phenomenal job of introducing this to several of us. Uh, his name is Alistair Coburn, and, and he comes from more of a, a teaching and learning model. And he talks about things like shuhari, which he brought from his uh, Japanese martial arts of Aikido on how we learn to do anything. And it's it's particular to Aikido, but think about like how we, for example, my, my wife is a phenomenal cook. And shuhari, meaning shu is the beginning stage, ha, we've we've actually gotten to a point where uh, we're we're in a working stage and restate is more of a mastery. And for me, I need to flip the box over and read the instructions verbatim. Right? <laughs> uh, I am a shu stage cooker. Uh, or chef. Um, <laughs> but my wife can actually look at what's in the pantry and say, I could make this or I could make that. I could I could blend these things together. And it's always amazing. And you you ask someone like that how they do it. And it's like, well, I don't really know. I just I just do. Right. So and there's every spectrum in between. And you know, that might be an example of our daily life, but it's the same thing in how we master any technology uh, in our professional lives and, and how we learn skills as well. So um, that was kind of my, my foray into uh, the Agile world. And it's, it's been a, a phenomenal journey ever since. Yeah. 
I'm sitting here in fascination. That didn't come up during our conversation, but it, there couldn't be a stronger point behind it. Um, I'm going to step back just a little bit. Um, I, I would have loved to have met somebody who put together the Agile Manifesto. Um, but if we go back to 1910 to 1915, Frederick Taylor, uh, the founder of Taylorism, suggested a very dystopic concept of the future of all humanity because of uh, the machine age, long before computers. And to him, the solution was process. And, and how do people survive socially is to have process to define what social behavior defined prior to that and all of the prior history of humanity. And so that's really what drove, I would even say, the founding of PMI 50 years ago. So it was about, we had to have process for schedules and process for budgets. And if humans followed the same process, then the social behaviors that we use to accommodate each other, you know, would be overcome by the whole process. And so the Agile Manifesto comes out in 2000. And literally everything was logical. It was your IQ, or it was based on Jungian stereotypes for people, which is, you know, there are very few Jungian stereotypes. So we all fit in three or four, one of three or four, tag, that's who you are. This was very, very rigid definition, but that's not how humans operate. And so neurosociology and psychology, you know, have been behavior-based. Then in about 19... 91, 92, we got the uh, functional MRI. And I mentioned a little bit about what that teaches us when I was back here in June. We now actually understand how the human brain works, how the human brain learns. We actually know the, the brain chemistry that makes that work. And out of some of that work came published in 2003, the concept of emotional intelligence. So now people aren't just judged based on their ability to logically solve process, but the ability to interact with one another and how we interpret. Then you know, emotional intelligence says there's 37 different emotions that you can capture in somebody's face. Can you see and recognize them all? And it's really how we learn. Uh, you know, Kahneman four or five years ago got the Nobel Prize for thinking fast and thinking slow. So literally in the last less than a decade, pardon me, we've learned that the human brain actually does learn in different ways by mirroring and mimicking other people. So now we're back to this full circle of the human nature of how we learn, how we interact, how we grow. And that gentleman from England wrote a book called Micromastery. And literally the first thing he micromasters, pick up a katana, so you said a keto, and all he wanted to do was figure out how to make it make the humming or swishing sound that it makes through the air when you swing a katana correctly. And so the, all he wanted to do was not all the moves, just swing it. And he kept doing that until... He could do it and people say, show me how. He says, I don't know. I just did all these hours, probably 20 or 30 is all it took, a focus effort. I can make it swing and make the right noise. And so he says, what's that matter? He says, that means you're holding it correctly if it makes that noise when you swing it through the air. Not too hard, not too soft, just right. Kind of the Goldilocks principle. And that's where, you know, it's the intro to Agile to swing it back there to Brad. That's where Agile's successful. When the manifesto came out, it said, you know, people over process. And it was heavily adopted. And then with a slight kind of slam, the first that came out of that is the first people said, oh, let's push it, created the Scrum Alliance, which is all about learning process and eight member teams with one Scrum master and one business owner and users must learn how to write good user stories. So it was all about the process for people to figure out how to adopt Scrum. That doesn't work very well, as Brad and I talked when we talked on Tuesday. It really is about the people and the interaction, not about the process, not about the technique. And so that, that's, where we're, that's where really Scrum and Agile play the right role. It's helping people understand it's the team that gets to know and support each other. And Joe and I were talking about tribalism and, you know, he said, can't we all just get along? Yeah. So. Well, I, 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 one thing that stands out to me, right, is, Brad, you mentioned at the beginning your title is a coach. Right. And, and we have different connotations in our lives of what a coach does versus what a manager does, right? A project manager versus a coach. So is that as simple as terminology, Brad? Does that come into play? Just the differences of way we perceive the different disciplines? Well, it's, it's a variety of things, to be honest. Uh, I wasn't sure what to expect as I assumed my first coach role several years ago. And really, I think it comes down to a blend of the art and the science of how we work. For example, from the blending the Shu Hari concepts along with the, the science of things, yes, there are some processes that need to be learned from a, from a team that's maybe, let's say, adopting Scrum for the very first time. The Scrum Guide is a fantastic resource for spelling some of those things out. But to Steve's point, we don't necessarily talk about 
how do we form as a team? How, you know, what are our working agreements? Those types of things. So from a coach perspective, I'm, I'm also positioned in the organization where I, I do not have people reporting to me. And that creates some level of safety for the team members in that they're not reporting directly to me. I'm not their manager. I am their guide on the journey. And part of bringing the team together is helping them understand what things are going to be important for the success of the team. Not only understanding the actual processes and the things that should happen along along the way, helping them to define their cadence, for example, because we want to make sure we've got a repeatable uh, series of events, for example. But also, let's let's talk about the human side, the the art, if you will, around the people. And how do we want to work together? What are those things that we want to talk about that we know maybe have created some challenges for us in the past, maybe with a prior team member or team? And and how do we make decisions, for example? When we when we disagree, what will we do about it? And these are the things that are important to kind of get teams started in the right direction. And as an enterprise coach, one thing that I've learned is there's in, in the company that I'm in right now, I have almost 100 teams, 100 software teams, and we have close to 500, four to 500 software de- development teams in our organization and in our enterprise, and with literally a handful of coaches. So there is not enough time or hours in the day to make sure that we get an opportunity to sit with every team uh, on a daily basis. So we have to work with our multipliers our scrum masters, for example, our product owners, and help them learn the skills to actually help become self-sufficient. You know, and I think you're, you brought up a lot there on the people side. And last year, during season two of the show, we talked a lot of neuroscience and neurosociology and Steve that you were on, and we discussed that. And you had referred me to uh, Dr. Barbara Troutline, and we had her on uh, last year as well. Um, and Ruth Pierce talked a lot about that. And I think there's a good connection here between project management, agile, delivery, execution of work, working in team settings, and knowing how people operate. Yeah, I, I believe that that's, that's critical. I, I believe that humanity is at a, a, a junction where we can make some really powerful decisions in the next decade. So it's not a you know doom and gloom at all. It's we finally understand how through neurosociology and some of that, how the human brain works and and the differences between us. And sociology has always used the term tribe uh, specifically to identify a group of, I'll call it up to 250 people, but the more commonly accepted number is about 150. You start to splinter. Tribes get smaller after about, about 150 people. And it's the ability to communicate, to identify a leader who can give them guidance and people who will follow a common goal. So I step back, you're, you're born into a family, a family unit's up to maybe 20 people, could be larger, could be smaller, but that's the number sociology uses, where you learn particular ideals, uh, thoughts, uh, processes, and you do that the first five or six years of your life, and then you start getting exposed to tribes, larger groups, whether it's in grade school or your community, you know, the people who live around you. Joe and I were talking about, you know, neighbors, et cetera. And we all seek our tribe, people with common goals. And the tribe really only survives if it's diverse. And this comes from way back in human history. You know, a a community had to have one potter and one person who worked with leather and one person who, you know, knew how to make the bread, et cetera. And if you didn't have the diversity, then you didn't survive as the seasons change. And so we all, I think, subconsciously as well as consciously seek who our tribes are. And then, you know, and... Brad and I mentioned this in our discussion, Dunbar's number, Dunbar in about 1990, 91-ish kind of suggested that, you know, you you get above 100 people and you break down the ability to communicate sufficiently with them. And then there's an Allen's curve and a bunch of other sociology stuff that goes with that that suggests the number of people exponentially increase, your ability to, to maintain sound relationships and communication starts to break down rather dramatically. And so Agile... That's the, you know, communication channels, N times N minus one divided by two, the formula. And once we get above six to eight people, the human brain can't fast or can't multitask at fast switches. So you can be in a room with up to seven other people and 
kind of catch the entire communication, the nonverbal, the verbal, and cues, and be a leader, a guide, understand, follow. You start to get above eight people, it starts to break down. Now you got to have some rules of engagement, and they're not hard rules and processes. It's understanding other people. That's where tribes come in. We understand each other's roles. We learn them. We learn the mastery of who that other person is. Once you have an effective tribe, so says social uh, sociology, um, that tribe can keep operating, and it's when you change the tribe, add somebody, subtract somebody, something comes along, and the tribe has to adapt that you find the strength or weakness of that tribe. But once you find a successful tribe, you don't want to break it apart. You want to let it survive in its diversity, in its diverse mix that gets it successful. And so what Brad's actually talking about is he's coaching to get those teams, whatever size they are, to get closer to that tribe nature where they communicate, where small groups can break apart and come back together and exchange information towards integration. And that integration is what makes the tribe successful. Let's the tribe deliver to the greater community and the greater community respect the tribe's ability to make their own decisions. And that's really sociology. But we didn't understand how that affected people until we started like in the 1995, six, and then into the new century. We now understand the the drugs that work on our brains, what makes us happy, the dopamine that's the pleasure drug, and that you get that from people with whom you are familiar. And so I, I can be around my wife, I can be around my friends, and that drug inside me picks up. I cannot be feeling well and suddenly start feeling really well. And that dopamine is also what gets us to really motivate ourselves to go solve challenging problems. You want to be about amongst people. You, you don't even think about it. It just is who we are as humans. So it's the human condition. That's what I'm saying. We're at the opportunity, not just say, oh, this is what sociologists and psychologists say, but medical studies show this is how humans operate. And if we all start understanding and accepting that, then it's not that one person's right or wrong. They're just not necessarily part of our tribe. I've been seeking my tribe since I was a young age constantly. Who are they? And project managers find new tribes every time they start a new project. Yeah. How do you blend them? Well, and, and that makes me think back to what, what Steve just said, back into Brad, you had mentioned there's hundreds now of folks that you're coaching, and these tribes are always forming and norming and conforming and building, but the, it's all around Agile today, and, and it didn't, at your organization, it wasn't like that before, so you've gone through an Agile transformation, and that you've helped as coach to bring that tribe together. How, how is an agile transformation successful? Right, that that's for me is always a challenge as somebody who doesn't have a strong agile background. I'm always in, intrigued to hear from the people who are doing a good job with agile how they can actually get the organization to transform. Yeah, and that's something that I think over time, since this is agile as a team model, has started. You know, even before probably the Agile Manifesto in 2001. But Agile at scale now really became more popular and very popular with Scaled Agile, the SAFE, for example, uh, back in 2011. And you know, how do we actually kind of organize the, the enterprise in order to have the benefits of a consistent tribe or team or team of teams? And really what we've learned over doing this a number of times, because the organization, organization I'm with is actually made up of uh, about 20 to 30 different companies through acquisition. And now that we're one large enterprise, how do we actually put that together so it works as one seamless unit? One thing for sure that has happened over and over again, and also learning from uh, other coaches in, in other spaces from from companies, is you got to start with the why, and you need to have executive support at the highest level. Without those, it will. we may find some benefits here and there, but we may not achieve the ultimate outcomes that we're looking for. So definitely getting uh, all the way up to the C-level if possible. And, and, and fortunately, we do have that in the organization that I'm in. But it's, it's figuring out how do we actually want to look at the organization from a value delivery perspective. So from the point that if we're customer focused and there's an ask from our from our customers to our company, how do we deliver on that value? And it often in the in the former days, and I was part of those as well. We had our 
you know, our, our project teams that would form together and, and figure something out, knock it out, and then disperse. And we'd have these beautiful things called project uh, uh, postmortems, if they ring any bells. Oh, yeah. And, and it was always like, okay, we'll learn at the end. And this really, this model, not only Agile, but Agile at scale, flips that and says, how do we structure the organization knowing that this is not the last time we'll ever do this, but how do we structure our organization for consistent value delivery of our products and knowing that we want to try to have teams that are longer lasting and bring those work, bring work to the teams rather than bringing the teams to the work. And uh, Steve mentioned the 150 number from Dunbar. So in a scaled agile model, for example, a release train, which is a team of te- team of teams or a, t- a group of uh, related software development teams that start forming this value chain. Uh, we try whatever we can to try to keep that within 150 people or less. Uh, oftentimes it's 50 to 125 for the communication purposes that, that Steve was referencing earlier. And likewise, for as we get down to the most granular agile team, uh, somewhere between six and 10, it has seemed to work pretty well. Uh, sometimes what's referred to as a two pizza team, if you can't feed the, the team with two pizzas or less, then it might be too large. And I've actually seen that in practice where we, we had a team that started approaching 12, 13, 14 and larger and we saw the benefits plateau and if not decline. And that also uh, noted from Robin Dunbar's work is that when we get to roughly 13 or 14 or so, there's not an exact number, but uh, the team will actually start to form clicks. So when there's a, a, a lot of stress going on, maybe to get a, a big release out the door, you'll start to see the separation of maybe two groups or three groups. And we saw that in practice. Likewise, we had a larger team that we said, you know what, we'd like to experiment and try this as two smaller teams, create some autonomy and some ownership for each team on what functionality within the products that they own. And that gave them that sense of purpose as well as autonomy. And that comes from Dan Pink's work around how do we build the motivation in our knowledge workers. And those are the things we continuously strive we look back to, and those are our guiding posts. So, you know, building the structures out, trying to create some levels of autonomy and, and ownership from whether it's a release train on a larger uh, piece of value or right down to the delivery team where there's clear ownership of a product and maybe it's dividing up a product into its functionality. Um, that's where, where we've gone with our internal model. And I know for example, as it, but it's not the only model, right? Spotify is well-known in the music space, and they're well-known for their tribe engineering model. And they use terms like squads and tribes and chapters and guilds to kind of identify not only with the teams and the groups of teams that they're working with, but also some of the specialties, like uh, Steve mentioned, the, the product managements, uh, the project managers, or the folks that are maybe coordinating and facilitating the work. You know, maybe there's specialists in, in building automation and testing and things like that. So uh, it's not only just a, a view of how we build out the work, but maybe some of the skills that we bring to those teams uh, to make them successful. It's obviously very interesting to, to hear that discussion. And I, you know, I think back a couple of nights ago, I, I myself was a two pizza team. So I, at times we can make a, a two pizza team be a, a team of one at times, depending <laughs> on how hungry we are. But I love the description there, right? Obviously the PMO squad, we chose the name squad because of the same thing, the concept of team. Um, and we don't do agile, right? We're a, a project-based organization. And over the past few years, we've evolved into uh, away from project and into delivery, and the more tools we add to our toolbox, whether it be uh, an Agile tool or a project tool or Kanban, Scrum, whatever it may be, it's all about how do we deliver. And as you create your discussion here with us today, Brad, I think back to Danielle Krop, who was on Danielle's leader at Amex, who helped guide them through their Agile transformation. She was on the show last year and talked about Portico, how they 
That was the code name, internal code name for their agile transformation. And to hear the similarities between your description and what, how she described it, I think the other listeners out there can take away from that and say, you know, there's some similarities here of how we can, how we can organize and structure and bring the work to the team as opposed to the team to the work. But there's also some differences between what you described and what they went through at Amex. And then going back to, you know, SAFE in 2011, Agile Manifesto in 2001, I mean, these are relatively new infantile methodologies and cultural movements in the grand scheme of organizations. So that I would expect there's probably going to be more change as we continue to learn, evolve, and improve what we're currently doing. I, and I'm going to say there has, there has to be. But that's what I'm calling the the new awareness of the human condition, my my label on it. We've all sought our tribes. We've all tried to figure out where we live. There's the whole issue in the bigger society, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere in terms of diversity and what diversity mean and, you know, what do we accept or don't we? And I really, if we boil that back, it's it's we're all finding labels, but we're really trying to be accepted for who we are and find our tribe. And once you find your tribe, you're comfortable with it. And then you want to say, don't attack my tribe. I mean, that's kind of where the, the diversity battle comes in. Don't attack my tribe. Cool. Well, as a society, we have to accept lots of tribes. And humanity, you know, the can't we all get along is just starting to learn to do that, that that's the nature of who we are. If you just abide by simple rules, humans, humanity's too too complex to do that. So there's no one right or wrong way. I mean, we could go deeply into the different ways people learn. In the conversation I had with Brad, and I don't want to steal his thunder, but it, it kind of opens the door. A couple of things that he shared that they do is one thing that I, you know, I wanted to whoop and holler and went talk to my wife after, right after we had our phone conversation uh, a couple of days ago, is the fact that the way that they do things is once a year they have a, or approximately once a year, they use open space technology. You can go find the book on open space technology, which is, it's essentially a one or two, two day session supported by top culture where you figure out what are you going to to challenge. You're going to figure out what's the why and how you're going to creatively tackle it. So it's a methodology to do that. But once everybody's in on that, um, it, it gives you the drive, the purpose, as well as the passion to move forward. But the other piece behind that that Brad shared is he says it's by invitation. So rather than, mm. you know, let's tap and, and, and do a team, traditional waterfall or however you want to look at projects have typically been by assignment. So you go to a functional manager and they say, here's who you get on the team. Or they say, here's the team, you're the project manager, make them efficient. The difference with that is, is you don't get to build a tribe that has that diverse skill set, that, that, that one each. I love the term you know, from Spotify where they've got a guild. Well, if you need somebody who's from the thieves guild or from the fighting guild or whatever you want to call it, yeah. go and draw one of each of those that you don't have the skill set into your tribe to affect the mission. And if they're happy, they're still part of the guild. They don't lose that, but they're part of your team, your tribe to move forward. And so that, that self-identification and that, that uh, of what's the why, and then the by invitation to pull people into these smaller groups of tribes that are effective. That's critical, I think, to the success of any business. And Agile gives some tools to be able to make that happen. And Scaled Agile talks all about that. I mean, we go back, you know, Scaled Agile, when I teach it in the classroom, I'm trying to get people to understand the concept of extreme programming as an Agile team of two people, right, who, who swap chairs every now and then review each other's work. And they become like an old married couple really quickly where they argue and fight and battle and the result's great, but the documentation doesn't exist. But it works really well in some aspects. Um, you know, DAD and Nexus and, you know, scaled Agile in 2011. But there have been all these attempts to find different ways. There's actually a formal one called Pig and Chicken, which is an Agile me uh, a methodology actually documented where, you know, it's from the, the old meme that the, the pig and the chicken are essentially starting a restaurant, right? The pigs are committed. The chicken only contributes. And so if you think about breakfast, you get the analogy yeah. of the, the ham and the eggs. I know. So, I like where that, brick, where that restaurant's finishing with the pig and the chicken. Right. right. So, <laughs> but the concept being is you've got some people who are all in on the team and other people who are only coming, contributing, and living. And if every, leaving, and everybody knows their role, then there's not this conflict for who's in charge or not in charge. You, you know what everybody's doing and what the, the impact or cost can be to every member. Those are the kinds of things that, that 
that Brad's doing in his business as a coach that makes a difference. And he shared some other stuff as well, but that's what makes agile and scaled agile work is that everybody working to identify the why, the creativity. And this is the human condition. You want somebody committed, then it has to be part of their idea and they have to desire to move towards their own form of mastery in their, I'll call it guild, using our terminology. Mm-hmm. Once they're all in, whatever that skill set is, they're willing to throw all in on that skill set. And, and that makes the difference for their contribution and therefore the success of the team and the tribe as a whole. To take a, a step away from the professional discussion for a minute and, and go back to tribes, I had mentioned I've known Brad for a long time, and he's a founding member of a great organization, KVF. Uh, Brad, you want to just spend a couple of minutes until I'll talk about that organization and what you guys do? Sure. Uh, so I had the opportunity to grow up in a very small town in, in central New York State, and it was near the, the foothills of the Adirondack Mountains in a, a little space called the Cuyahura Valley which was named after the Indian tribes that originally settled there. And our high school was a very small school. Our graduating class, just to put it in numbers, was about 43 people. And I had the opportunity to make some lifelong friends there. And one of our uh, friends, who was the oldest of 13 kids, and mind you, they had one bathroom. So they had a lot of process built into their house already <laughs> just to make sure that they could get a shower every day. That was an agile house. <laughs> I think that was run a little bit more military style. Like, yeah. here's your time slot. You can choose to take it or not. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was still a choice. At any rate, the the eldest, when he was getting married, decided to have a few of his family members play a, a little bit of golf before the, the ceremony. And about 60 people showed up. And the next year, they were like, that was fun. We should do that again. And 150 people showed up. And that was 30, 31 years ago when that all started. And we had the opportunity to say, you know what? This, this could be something special. And let's, let's think beyond ourselves. And what can we do to give back to the community? So the Cuyahura Valley Foundation was formed unofficially 31 years ago. And we got our 501c3 back in, gosh, I think 2000. I have to double check. It's it's been at least a decade or two, and we've had the opportunity now to give back over a half a million dollars to not only the original community, but now we've expanded to Atlanta, where where I live and one of my best friend lives, and we've hosted a, a tournament here for over twenty years uh, called the Mac Daddy with Joe Lindenmeyer, and we give back to our local communities as well because that's that's the way of the world now is. The technology has enabled us to really move and still be close, even when we're hundreds or thousands of miles away. So that's something that we had the opportunity to build, and I'm very passionate about working through that organization and most recently gave back to some of the folks that were affected in our hometown by uh, some severe flooding uh, just uh, right, right after Halloween this year. So, yeah, we actually use some of these technologies and 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 thought processes around how we work with our volunteer group, our, our board of directors, and how we put tournaments together. We'll, we'll try to make things more visible. We'll build, put things in Trello, for example, in a Kanban board. Um, so we all have visibility and access to it, and we're all empowered to help provide the best outcome as possible. Well, I can vouch for everything that you guys do. You and Lindy have been great friends to me over the years, and uh, the inspiration, actually, for me to start our nonprofit, VPMMA, was probably 100% because of my participation and seeing you guys and what you've done over the years. My salute to you guys, what you do each year is amazing. Uh, it's inspirational. I know it changes lives for people. And uh, thanks so much for doing what you do. Small Town Values for Life is a great tagline, and I think you guys live it every day. So thank you so much for that, Brad. And let me, let me applaud both of you. And, and this is what we talk about when I say tribalism without tribalism being uh, separatist or, you know, isolationist in any way. It's the concept that humans operate really well efficiently as tribes. When you find your tribe, it just, it picks a goal and it just keeps moving and growing year after year. And it would be hard to knock the tribe off unless you get an external tribe trying to do it. And this is where humanity, I think, has always survived 
is where you find your tribe or tribes. We can be members of more than one tribe, I think, um, as we go through it, particularly with the ability to communicate remotely, as those of you listening to this radio, you know, broadcast are, et cetera. So you can become more than, you know, one tribe, but it's that connection where we find the common goal and we feel a part of it. And once we feel a part of it, the neurosociology, the brain, the body, the emotions kick in, and you wouldn't want to miss next year's opportunity or the next month or whenever it happens, you'll just be there. And that's the same thing. I mean, we talk about it outside of work, but, you know, Joe says, can't we all just get along? I think the way we're going to learn to be better project managers, and, and PMI is even looking at this with the tall project economy, is where we start to hybridize the human system and the processes together and understanding that their people are different. And we invite those people in who can help us. And we also say, hey, if I'm not invited, it just means they don't have somebody who fills my role. How can I do a secondary role or how can I support another tribe rather than us going, oh, my gosh, we've been excluded. They didn't pick me on the playground. And I, I love uh, last year the PMI purchased Disciplined Agile and is understanding uh, that we're all delivery, right? I mean, we've got to get out of these labels of what we are and think about what we do uh, and start with why we're doing it. You know, that's the whole purpose-driven PMO that we've branded is it starts with the purpose. If we don't understand why we're doing it, what are we doing? And that's why PMOs fail within two to three-year cycle because they they and the organization aren't aligned on their why. Uh, so we start with that. The, the other part of that is interesting for me is when I think of Agile, I don't think as much about metrics as I do when I think of project management. And I don't know why. I'm probably my own ignorance with that. But Brad, help educate me and all the listeners on where metrics really are important to what you're doing with the Agile stuff. Sure. And I think a lot of it, it starts with making the work and, and even the, the measurements visible. And that, that helps foster the understanding as well as building the trust in the organization. And I know we've, we've spent a good bit talking about the human condition and the, and the human side of Agile and development. And there is a, a process and a technology and a, a science to it as well. And something that we've been leveraging more recently, it comes from a very popular book that came out recently called Accelerate. It's the science of lean software and DevOps. There's some measurements because it's, it's always been difficult. Like, well, what, what do we want to measure? Like, what, what's the stuff that matters? Because any measurement can be gamed as we, I'm sure, have experienced. Um, but they've, they've kind of used a lot of research over hundreds, if not thousands of teams to come down to like, let's talk about the things that we really care about and the things that our customer cares about. And these things are like lead time, like from the time that a, a customer has a request to the time that value is delivered. That's, that time matters. Uh, I can speak for myself and I'm sure many folks can relate. Um, how many folks have Amazon Prime, right? And, and why do we have it? Well, that two-day delivery is is pretty special when we're looking to get something quickly and guarantee, almost guarantee that it will be there within two days. And people are willing to pay for faster services as well, like Amazon Now. Yeah, give so, it to me now. Yeah, as long give as, it to yeah, me now. And I would agree. And as long as we're guaranteed that we're going to get it. And I think that's typically been the the challenge of predictive or incremental or iterative kind of the phases before we got to, you know, adaptive slash agile kind of methodologies is there was no guarantee of delivery. And so people were hesitant. And so predictive versus agile, because it's kind of part of what Joe wanted. Predictive is where you have high risk and high complexity and you want to understand all the parts, at least from a planning perspective, before you start to execute. But we've shifted towards the incremental where once we understand some of the deliverables, like you know, what's the minimum viable product became an agile term. If I could give somebody something sooner, um, then why wouldn't I? And that's where incremental and then our iterative came where we're trying to learn the process. They're really not that different. And I, I kind of think as we move forward, we don't want to throw, this is the challenge of people who say either um, predictive, you know, waterfall, cascade being, you know, forms of predictive versus adaptive slash agile, is we want to throw one or the other out. PMI starts to call it hybrid without defining what that means. But but if we if we go back and say, let's learn the lessons from, you know, we're, we're not going to get rid of Deming. Plan, do, check, act, right? Continuous process improvement is about measurement. 
but really, literally plan to check back. If you look back at the history of the PMBOK, I had the fortune of doing that under Ed as my mentor. Where did we come up with? We initiate, then we plan, execute, monitor, and control before we go towards closure of one or more deliverables to the customer. Well, what is planning, executing, monitoring, controlling other than plan, do, check, act by a simple different set of labels? It's really the same thing. It's about measuring it. So the question really should become not what methodology am I using in terms of predictive, incremental, you know, adaptive. It should be, how do I plan? You know, how am I going to execute? When am I going to check? That's my measurement, you know, and act if I need to, to correct it. And it's the same exact cycle and measurement. It's just different process labels on it. And we try to differentiate to say, I'm this kind or that kind. It doesn't really matter. Pick your own terms. You know, Spotify, pick their own terms. They're using different tools integrated in the system where Brad works, and they're making it work by finding the tool sets that integrate best for their culture. And, and that, that's what I got out of his talk. And, you know, without my doing it, they, they use their own tool, you know, to try to identify how people think, you know, literally how they think, how they contribute so that they can identify who they might, int- you know, invite into a team by because of the diversity or the sameness they want. That's not part of agile or predictive. It's about social skills and finding the right people. Um, and so all of that, you know, agile can work. Any agile tool can work. Any predictive tool can work if you've got the the right cycle and the measurement. And how quickly does somebody want it? I'm glad triage works really well in a hospital when there's an emergency room. But if it's not triage in an emergency room, I'd really like somebody to plan carefully before they pull me into surgery for what they're doing to eliminate the reactive risk that occurs when it's not triage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So if we were to continue that, it's what Steve was referring to. One of the other measurements that we look at is deployment frequency. So how frequently are we putting product updates out into the market space? And that really helps us in the way that we can get feedback, not only from, there's there's really almost two feedback loops if you read some of Jeff Patton's work. The feedback loop, one is just the technology itself. You know, is it working? Is it working as we expected? And number two is is actually the product giving the customers what they're looking for. Are, are we adding value to their, to their lives? And, and obviously that works back in our benefit from the development organization. So, the, the shorter we can make those feedback loops, the better. But it's also understanding what the environment is, right? So what I mean by that is uh, we may be, it, it may be fantastic for us to get an update on our iPhone of a new app. Not that big a deal, right? It's quick download or it happens automatically. Mm-hmm. But if we need to, you know, change a process or, uh, for example, maybe it's a new medical device, you know, these are things that would require a little bit longer, a little bit more thorough, thorough testing to get that feedback. Um, but the earlier we can get that feedback, even if it's in a non-production environment, the better. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, feedback. What I always try to do on this show is take our professional discussion and put it into our personal lives. And it just think if I'm rearing a child, raising my child, or having a discussion with my wife, uh, and my wife kind of gets me on this all the time, and I just look at her but don't provide feedback for what she's saying, whether it's a verbal cue or a nonverbal cue, she's like, give me the feedback, right? I want to know if it was a good discussion or not. It's what we do in our professional life. We, we want those same desires, right, to be there as well as, as my boss, as an employer, as a team member, right? You want to get that feedback. Absolutely, because we're we're talking in this case about deployment frequency, but feedback is in so many different forms. And Steve mentioned the Agile Open that we do, which is more of an invitation-based way of providing really feedback to the organization at a at a larger scale. But we also leverage things on a cadence. So, for example, we have two-week development iterations or sprints, and at the end of those, the teams do their feedback loops to themselves on how they're working. And as we scale that, we said, well, how do we do that across a team of teams? And what we've done is we've leveraged a technology as well as a process to help support this. So at the end of each quarter, for example, a release train, all the teams go through and we've been leveraging a product called Agility Health. And Agility Health was built by a company in Omaha, Nebraska called Agile Transformation, Inc. 
and Sally Alada as the, the founder. And they've leveraged a lot of behavioral scientists, technologies, and, and coaches on how they frame the questions so they can actually not only get the feedback, but increase the level of learning as team members change. Maybe we have a new, new person to the organization. And it helps create some level of understanding of here's, here's what crawling looks like versus walking versus running versus flying in different areas. And we don't have to fly at a brilliant pace on everything. It just depends on what we need from uh, a given product or team. And it gives an opportunity for the teams to provide input as well as get that feedback on a cadence. And that gives us a visualization. It actually creates a, a beautiful output. And we we keep things, all the specific comments, private to the team. They, they provide that. The facilitators, I'm being one of them, provide a level of safety back to the team so they can be open, honest, and direct with whoever's facilitating that. There's still a visualization of what comes out as well as, hey, here's the things that we as a team, we're going to work on and the things that we own ourselves. And then there's also things like organizational growth items. Here's the things that we don't feel we have control of. Maybe it's a, you know, how we do road mapping or finances or something related to human uh, relations and people strategies. That gives opportunities for leaders within the organization to get visibility and say, what, what do we feel is the most important thing to work on next? This crosses the feedback outside the team and across the teams in a, in a very healthy way. As you're describing all that, the, the one thing that keeps going through my mind is that's all organizational change, right, is included in that. How, how does the organization absorb that? And to me, um, it's, it's what we help our clients with all the time, right, is there's just chaos of change, right? And Steve, in our conversations back in June, this came up. And, you know, for people who didn't catch it, you want to riff a little bit on the chaos sure. of change and, and yeah. see where that goes. We could, we could riff almost any place on that one. Change to the human brain is pain. It literally fires the same neuro uh, receptor transmitters in our brains now. If you start to talk to any human being about change and you put them under a, a functional MRI scan to see what neurons are firing, it'll be the same neurons that fire as though they are actually going through physical pain. And, and much of the time when you've got a headache, where the headache manifests or, your brain, or you're telling yourself the headache manifests is not the source. I mean, you can have a tense muscle someplace and your head starts to throb and you can try to massage your head, but if you don't get whatever the source is, it, it's not fixing it. And, and humans are the same way. So you say change and people will literally react negatively because no one wants to have pain until they have a goal. As soon as they have a goal, then people can push themselves through amazing pain. You know, the stories of people who can lift tractors off of their kids or friends who are pinned, it's they overcome the limitation of the human mind. And that's really what project managers and the tools of project management come. And, and we talk about the J-curve of change. And everybody who has read all kinds of stories and books, you know, the, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective Leaders, they suggest the flywheel. And you have to push and push to get it going. And until you get it up to speed, it's hard work. And if you slow down or stop at any point in time, the flywheel stops. You got to start all over with the hard work at the beginning. But the study of the J-curve of change actually says that rather than a, a curve, like you're, if you were watching my hands on the radio, see my curve going up with the, the that you got to push it up uphill is the typical misconception. Change occurs because of disruption first. And so I use the analogy of, you know, muscles or, or et cetera. If you're trying to gain muscles or lose weight, one of my goals, let's see if I can stick to this for 2020, better than 2019 at least, is I have to break down tissue. I have to break down fat. I have to break down muscles to have attachment points for the new muscles to grow. So all change is disruptive. There's a period of time and a deflection that you go through before you start getting back to the new spot. And most people get themselves back to what I'd call the equality point. So where you are when you started, but you still have to climb the hill further before you get to a new stable level. And we stop. We stop when we get to that equal point which suggests that gravity will pull us to the lower point of the deflection. So we keep getting a little worse rather than a little better if we don't pay attention to the natural order of change occurring. If, if that message doesn't get sense, if you ever need to remodel a house, 
you got to tear something down. You got to tear a wall out. You got to tear cabinets out of the kitchen. You got to do some disruption before the growth happens. And if all you do is get back to the same point of function, you don't get to a new sustainable level. And it's that way everywhere. And so that's the chaos of change. And if you don't help all of the people, the customers and the team understand that disruptive aspect of it, then nobody's ready to jump in and make it happen. Not really ready. They'll claim they are, but they get partway there and then it gets very disruptive. And if we take that into this tribal concept or culture, you know, I love the, the, the talk with Brad and everything he's doing spot on, but you get to another culture that's got a different mechanism. I teach a lot of students for the state of Arizona who are trying to get certified for the state of Arizona. Everything they were doing was predictive for a number of years. Now, everything they want to do is agile. Still project management, still the cycle. If they want a PMP, it's still the same sort changing later this year. But the cycle they follow is absolutely different. They have to spend every single dime of their budget in a fiscal year or they get no funding for the following year. So they're trying to provide value to their customers, but the value to the customer is not the same cycle as their fiscal cycle. And they've got to reconcile that. So their culture and their tools would by definition, have to be different than many of the tools that Brad discusses. And that's where, you know, it's the people factor. It's the cultures and the tribes delivering to different goals that are going to have to find the right project management tools that fit their culture, their tribe. And they're going to have to understand the people individually that are there because you're going to find people that don't match. Sorry, don't match the tribe, don't match the culture. You either have to guide the people coached like Brad's doing or they're not going to get invited. I'm using Brad's term. And somebody who doesn't get invited to the table two or three or four years in a row is either going to feel displaced or get displaced. And that doesn't mean they're yeah. wrong. It just means they're not part of the tribe. They haven't found their tribe yet, which is why I kind of kiddingly say when I'm talking to people, I'm still looking for my tribes, plural, because I do really well in one place and then everything's settled. And it's like, you know, Shane, come back. Shane goes, no, I don't need to come back. You're doing all fine by your own. Your tribe, your community is self-sustaining. You don't need a gunslinger anymore. You don't need that firefighter project manager. I'd love to find a position like Brad's where he gets to coach a new tribe again and again and again. So he's found the culture where he's the tribal guide or coach. Yeah. That's what Joe and I kind of do as you know outsiders rather than inside of an organization. It's the same role. That's, I think, the ideal role for any project manager listening today. Absolutely. If you're trying to be in a PMO or do it, that's what you want to do. Trying to be the leader of my squad, the PMO that's, squad. Exactly. Right? That's, that's it. That's what you're trying to do. You know, and, and both of you have, have talked about Spotify earlier today, and they are not a sponsor of the show, but we would gladly welcome them to come sponsor us if they'd like. These shows are recorded so that they're all available on Spotify, even though we are live today. And I mention that because amazingly, our our hour has come up. That that has not changed as we've entered season three. These shows go by so quickly, and maybe we need to start doing uh, longer shows. But that would probably be too tough for folks to listen to for that long. So, Brad and Steve, thanks so much for for being guests today. Thank you for being the first guest of 2020. Super excited to be back for another year. Uh, and Brad and Steve want to give you both an opportunity uh, to let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you. If they want to follow up with you after the show, Brad, we'll, we'll let you go first. Well, thank you so much. I agree. This, this time has gone by so quickly. Uh, I always learn so much speaking with other folks. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at my handle is Brad Hugic, B-R-A-D-H-U-G-I-C-K. And look forward to, or through LinkedIn, also Brad Hugic. And uh, we mentioned our Cuyahura Valley uh, Foundation. It is CuyahuraValley.org. And if you're trying to spell that one, probably just type in KVF Golf, and it will be the first result in your Google search. So, Joe, Steve, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brad. And Steve? Thank you, Brad. It's been a pleasure visiting with you. Um, the easiest way to reach me is you can email me at Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, at blue the color blue, B-L-U-E, sphere, like the globe, S-P-H-E-R-E. And then the next four letters are the abbreviation for the word solutions. So S-O-L-N, Sam, October, Lima, Nancy. So Stephen at bluesphere, S-O-L-N dot com. You can also find me as Stephen Fulmer on LinkedIn. And you can hunt for bluesphere solutions dot com. That's kind of a holding place website. 
And I also instruct, I should say this because they always give me time to help Joe and others, interface technical training. So if you look at that, that's where I'm a formal project management staff instructor uh, just for extra input. And uh, I look forward to visiting others of you all during 2020. Well, thank you both for joining us. And of course, thank you to our listeners. If we didn't have listeners, we wouldn't be on. Uh, So we do these shows for you. I appreciate all of your feedback and input, uh, letting me know what you want to hear from the guests that we have. And as I mentioned, we are recorded, so the shows are available for playback as a podcast. In addition to Spotify, we're on Apple Play, uh, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, you name it. Whatever your podcast platform of choice is, we're out there. Of course, thank you to our sponsors, the PMO Squad. Go out to www.thepmosquad.com to learn more about their services. We've got an amazing lineup of guests lined up for this year. I can't wait to talk to folks from all over the globe. We've got local guests here in Phoenix, but we're going to be hearing from people in in the UK, Australia, throughout Europe, South America, and more. And project management is a tribe that is global. So, I've had the good fortune to participate in several global events in 2019. Looking forward to more of that in 2020. So that's it for now. Office hours are closed. Until next time, I'm PMO Joe, and you've been listening to Project Management Office Hours. (laughs) 